welcome to the Personality Psychology Podcast. My name is Rebecca Weidmann, and I'm the host of this episode. Today, I will be speaking with Julie Exline, a psychology professor at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. She studies the psychology of religion and spirituality, including religious and spiritual struggles and the causes and consequences of supernatural attributions. Welcome to the podcast, Julie. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. So am I. Before we go into depth about your research, I was wondering whether you could help us with some definitions. You study religion and spirituality. What are their definitions? What are they? There's a lot of controversy about the definitions, but briefly, spirituality has to do with some kind of searching or experience involving something that you see as transcendent. So that might be something like God or a supernatural realm, or it might be something that has more to do with a sense of deep fundamental connection to other people or other living beings, or maybe even to the universe. And for some people, spirituality and that sense of transcendence just has to do with something that a person finds very deeply meaningful in a way that feels more special than just the everyday. But it's really that sense of something transcendent, something that goes beyond the normal that people are talking about when they're talking about spirituality. And often there's this theme of connectedness involved with it. And religion is basically just an attempt to take these spiritual pursuits or beliefs and kind of wrap them in an organizational context. So if you've got a group of people getting together trying to focus on some core set of spiritual beliefs or practices. When you start getting people together around it and start forming an organization, then you've got religion. What got you interested in studying religion and spirituality in the first place? For me, it's really something that has been a big part of my own life journey, although I wouldn't describe it as just me search because I, I really am interested in the exciting things that people experience around spirituality and the, the hope and comfort it brings them, but also the struggles that they have. And my own background, I was raised as a very conservative fundamentalist Baptist in Northern Michigan. So I was part of a very tight-knit religious community. We were in church multiple times a week, and there were benefits of that. I mean, I definitely had a clear sense of community and a very clear moral compass. But it also made the world seem like a pretty scary place because we definitely had the belief that people who didn't accept Jesus as their personal savior were going to hell. So you were just kind of worried about everybody out in the world and felt like you were supposed to be trying to save them, but you didn't know how. You also didn't want to offend people. But just this basic belief that God would send people to hell forever for just believing the wrong thing gave me a real sense of conflict where you're being taught about how loving God is on the one hand and how God has a good plan for your life and how God loves everyone, but also the, there was this whole hell thing. So between that and a belief in what some listeners might be familiar with called the, the rapture, this belief that Jesus could come back at any time and just take the believers up to heaven and everyone else would be left behind to suffer great tribulations and things. That was terrifying because when I would come home from school as a little kid or come home from a friend's house, if there wasn't somebody home, there was always that fear. Have I been left behind? And that was not unusual. My friends and I would talk about it. If you're raised in a belief system like this and you're very much, this is a very big part of your life that's going to be there. So for me, 
you know, I had very loving parents. And so I, that helped me in terms of seeing God in a positive way, you know, kind of those attachment issues. So there was some really positive things for me. And I was able to see God as loving most of the time, but I really struggled a lot with those aspects of religious community. And then we had lots of rules and regulations. You know, I certainly couldn't drink alcohol or smoke cigarettes or anything, but we couldn't even dance or go to the movies or things like that. So I was very, very sheltered. And, you know, as you get older, there are going to be things that you have that aren't going to always fit the rules. For me, I actually went through a divorce when I was, I got married very young, got divorced very young, and it was a problematic relationship, you know, an abusive relationship. And I felt profoundly unsupported by people in my religious community who said, you know, we don't want you to get hurt, but you know, there are certain loopholes for divorce in the Bible and and abuse isn't one of them. (laughs) So that now granted that is not always going to be the, the type of response that people get, but that was my experience. For me, I felt like it took so much courage to leave this relationship that to have people tell me that I should stay really made me angry. So then I really did kind of an exit from organized religion for a time uh, and was very angry at the church, et cetera. And that's about the time that I went to grad school and eventually more toward my postdoc time started studying spiritual struggles. So I've got quite a bit of energy around them, but I'm really interested in, in seeing how they play out for people in general and how I can help people find healing from them. It's been interesting seeing how my own experience has played into my interests, but I certainly don't want it to just stay with my own stuff. Thank you so much for sharing. Sure. Of course, this is the Personality Psychology Podcast. And before you tell us more about your interesting research, I was wondering if you could describe personality traits, maybe that people are more likely to have who are religious or spiritual. Sure. And there are some interesting distinctions here between religion and spirituality, but for the most part, People who are more conscientious, so people who are more inclined to see things through, you know, maybe seek a little more order and st- structure and to be reliable and committed, uh, tend to be uh, higher in uh, religiousness. And, and religiousness and spirituality often correlate very highly. So there's not always that much of a distinction, but conscientious people tend to be more comfortable with seeking that structure, maybe going along with the religious rules and guidelines, showing up for things, you know, participating. So conscientiousness is a certainly a big thing. And also with conscientiousness, there's that basic desire for self, self-control and that ability to engage in self-control. And one of the social functions that religion provides is really to help to foster self-control. Uh, and some might argue social control as well. So people who are more conscientious are going to tend to be more drawn to organized religion and maybe feel more capable of following it and carrying through with it. It might feel better about doing that because they're people who want to uh, be able to do things in in that more maybe goal-focused or structured way. Uh, also agreeableness to some extent. Um, so people who are are more likely to Trust other people would presumably also be more likely to trust God if they have an image of God or to view maybe relationships with deceased people, deceased loved ones in a, in a positive way. So people who have harmonious relationships with others generally 
tend to be more willing to join things, go along with groups, and tend to give other people the benefit of the doubt are going to tend to do that with other people in general. So they're just going to be more likely to join things in general and to get along with people and to not get as aggravated and, you know, quickly leave a group because they're, uh, they have that tendency toward wanting those harmonious social connections. And extroversion a little bit with, especially with religious participation, but it's not the biggest thing. Uh, in terms of spirituality, uh, openness to experience can be very important. And this is the, the trait that probably distinguishes the most clearly between a person being religious versus being kind of spiritual, but not religious. Because being open to experience where you're really curious about ideas, maybe open to new perspectives, uh, intellectually curious, often goes along with this kind of spiritual seeking, you could say, or, or maybe pursuing something like psychedelic experiences or meditation. You're trying out new, new spiritual pathways. Somebody who's more open to experience is going to be maybe more curious about those things and more interested in, in trying them out. Uh, not to say a traditionally religious person wouldn't be interested, but a lot of times with religion, because of those those social uh, institutions where it resides, you you might end up running into trouble with other people or with the tradition if you're kind of going outside the box. And a person who's very open to experience might really be always kind of looking to explore those boundaries and might not be content being confined in the context of a religious tradition, a single one, if they really want to explore ideas and maybe new practices. So one of the central topics of your current research is religious and spiritual struggles. Can you tell me more about what these struggles look like and what you found in studying them? Sure. Yeah, this is one of my favorite topics. We've actually been doing research on this for a couple of uh, decades. And Ken Pargaman and I just had a book come out with Guilford Press on this topic that gives a recent overview. So religious and spiritual struggles are what we call experiences of tension or conflict or maybe strain around religion or spirituality. People can experience religious or spiritual struggles regardless of whether they're personally religious themselves. Let me explain a little bit more about the six types of struggles that we've measured and that are in our the measures that we've made. And this is by no means an exhaustive list, but these are some of the more common struggles that people do experience around religion. The, the first two types are what we call the, the more supernaturally focused struggles, which involve beliefs around God and the devil or supernatural evil. So divine struggles involve cases where a person might have negative emotions or thoughts focused on God or the idea of God. So the idea of being angry at God, feeling punished by God, questioning whether God loves you, things like that. And that work on anger at God is probably the thing that I've studied the, the most. And then demonic struggles have to do with a belief that the devil or evil spirits are like influencing events here in the world, or maybe that the devil is tempting a person or attacking them or trying to pull them off the path of what's right. Those types of struggles that focus more on supernatural beliefs you know, people are going to suffer more from those if they believe strongly in God and the devil and they believe that the God, God and the devil are involved in the world. So these are going to be things that are experienced more by people who are 
uh, more religious. But I did just want to note one interesting side point here. Sometimes there can be an assumption that, let's say, if we're talking about anger at God, that a person would only experience that or it would, it would only have any relevance for them if they believed in God. And we've had a number of, of papers over the years. David Bradley and Alex Usdevinis worked with me on a lot of these things. Um, and uh, Aaron Sedler did a, a great paper on this that I was involved with, looking at spiritual struggles among atheists. And what we find is that for the some of the other struggles that I'm going to talk about that don't involve supernatural beliefs, that atheists often have those struggles. But in terms of these beliefs about God, these divine struggles, we've got some papers showing that sometimes even when people don't believe in God, the idea of God can still bring up angry feelings for them. And sometimes they'll even endorse on a survey that they're angry at God because you know we don't give them space to explain what they mean. Usually what seems to be happening is either people are having like a belief that if God did exist, God would be a jerk and I would be angry, or they're angry at religion in general. So just the thought of God brings up angry thoughts, even if they don't believe. Or for some people, there might be a, a pattern that's been referred to as emotional atheism, where somebody used to believe in God and then something bad happened. And like maybe a, a tragedy happened or there was a big letdown in a person's life. And then they basically stopped believing in God partly as a way of exiting the relationship. So it's kind of like you'd end a relationship with another person. You might end a relationship with God and say, I'm not going to believe in you anymore. This might not always be super conscious, but it does seem to be one of the patterns that happens. So the reason I'm going into all that is just to say, even though these supernatural struggles are ones that are going to be stronger among people with strong belief in God or the devil or spirits or whatever it is, you don't want to rule out the possibility that a person might still have some energy around these things, even if they're currently not religious or atheist or agnostic. The other struggles that we've looked at include interpersonal struggles around religion, and these are huge. Regardless of whether people are religious or not, most people have some issues with organized religion or religious people. You know, people who are religiously engaged, like they're in a religious community of some type, church, mosque, synagogue, temple. We have all these interpersonal conflicts with people and differences in our beliefs and differences in our preferences. We might feel rejected or hurt or misunderstood. You know, there's all these conflicts that happen anytime we're in an organization with people and religious communities are no different. But even if people aren't part of a religious community at all, one of my favorite items that we made sure to get into the, the final measure is called anger at organized religion. And regardless of whether people are, are religious or not, this is very common. It's often the most endorsed interpersonal struggle around, around religion because so many people get frustrated with all of the confusing, maybe hypocritical, maybe cruel seeming things that can be associated with religion or that religious people or religious leaders do. You, know, you can think about the intertwining of religion and politics and how that's all feeding into political polarization. You can think about um, rights for women or uh, for immigrants or for people in racial minority groups, LGBTQ people. You know, there are all these different things that can come up that can get wrapped up with religion, abortion issues. There are just so many topics where people's own opinions, maybe their passionate opinions, 
might really differ from religious teachings. And they might feel excluded from religious communities, or they might just be annoyed and not want to be a part of a religious community because they see the values as not aligning with their own. So those interpersonal struggles around religion are really common. And then we've got doubt-related struggles. So a lot of people experience doubt around their beliefs, and that's not a struggle for everyone. So people who have, again, more of this intellectual curiosity or openness to experience, or what psychologists of religion call a quest orientation to religion, which is kind of a, a belief that my beliefs are going to keep growing and changing and shifting. And I'm on a quest, you know, this is, it's not an end point, it's a quest. So those types of beliefs tend to go along with, with doubt. You know, you don't want to be somebody who just tells you what to believe and you want to be thoughtful about it. You're going to probably have some doubts. With our measure, because we're looking at struggles, this is in our religious and spiritual struggle scale, doubt-related struggles, all of our items are framed in terms of some type of conflict or distress. So we're implying that you're having concerns or confusion about your beliefs, for example. Uh, and then we've got ultimate meaning struggles, concern about whether there's ultimately any deeper meaning or purpose in your life. This is the one that's most closely associated with things like anxiety and depression. And then we've, we have moral struggles where we don't use the sin language because we're trying to keep it away from something that implies that you're religious, but people wrestling with their beliefs or wrestling with trying to do what they see as right or beating themselves up when they've done something that's wrong. So those are the types of struggles. They're very common. Around 70% of people in a big U.S. sample that we had said that they sometimes experienced these struggles. And over half said that they were experiencing some of these in the past month. So people are often very ashamed and concerned when they're having spiritual struggles, especially something like doubt or anger at God. Uh, they might be afraid to tell people about it. So one of the most important take-home points here is just to know how incredibly common these struggles are and to help normalize them for people. Because we found that when you can help to normalize the struggles for people, they actually end up having less struggle. You know, it helps them to resolve it and to come out of it in a better place. But if people feel like they're being shamed or questioned for having these struggles, that it's not okay, they end up holding on to their negative feelings, kind of trying to suppress them, sweep them under the rug, and often end up staying angry at God, for example, and even doing things like abusing more substances. Just knowing that they're common, that they're certainly associated with things like emotional distress, which is no surprise because we've got distress baked into the items, but that they can also be potential sources of growth for people. If you think about how you often need to struggle in order to grow and shift and change your beliefs, a lot of times these struggles can be a part of that. And a lot of it just has to do with once you have the struggle, finding a way to respond to it that is life-giving and like weaving it into your life narrative as with Dan McAdams' work, you know, finding a transformative narrative around it and being able to tolerate some ambiguity rather than looking for easy answers to some of these really tough existential questions. That's interesting. Thank you so much. I was wondering who is more likely to experience these struggles? Is it age-related or does it link to what people go through, life events maybe? It's a great question. And one tricky thing about it is that 
the different spiritual struggles are quite different from each other. So feeling like you have no meaning in your life is quite different from being angry at religious people. Uh, and that's quite different from feeling like the devil's attacking you. But in general, people who are more religiously engaged have somewhat more of these struggles. We don't see really strong connections with age. I think younger people have a little more of the struggles than older people do, but we see them across all demographic groups. And as you suggested, as with any life struggle, they're often focused on stressful life events of, of one kind or another, where people are trying to make meaning from it and are trying to make attributions and appraisals around it to help them make sense of things. And sometimes the struggles actually come from within the traditions themselves. So maybe learning about the teachings of a particular religious group and finding that it just isn't aligning with your own beliefs at the time. So you also study how people experience God, the devil, ghosts, karma, or luck, and call these supernatural operating rules. Can you tell me what that line of research has taught you so far about what people believe? Sure. What we've found in that work is that just think about a case where somebody were to come up to you and say, God told me something. Or, you know, my mother who died last week, I think that she sent me a message. You know, I saw this deer outside my window and I think it was a message from my mom. Would you tend to think that they were imagining something, that they were, you know, just trying to make meaning? Would you think it was maybe a hallucination, etc.? And what we found in this work on supernatural operating rules is just that when we are trying to understand who might have caused an action, whether it's a person or a supernatural being, you know, you have to take into account how well the qualities of, of that particular person or entity match with what happened. So let's say a mom sees a, you know, there had been a bunch of dirty clothes lying all, all over her bed. And then she sees like a laundry basket with all these clean clothes sitting on the bed a few hours later. She's probably not going to think that her two-year-old did it because her two-year-old doesn't have the opportunity to do that. She's probably not going to think that her husband did it because they are still in the middle of a huge fight with no sign of reconciliation. But then she might think of her oldest daughter that she had a talk with that morning about how stressed out she was and think, ah, she's the one who would have done it. So with these supernatural operating rules, it's it's similar where people are trying to match their ideas about, let's focus on something like a spirit. So they have beliefs about the power of spirits. So do spirits have the power to intervene in the world? Do they have the power to talk to us? Do they have the power to influence natural events like making a deer show up at your door? Or can they turn into a deer? What abilities do they have? So power is one set of questions. And then there are these questions having to do with what we call the scope of operation. So let's let's think about something like God. If somebody feels like something was a gift from God, well, that might seem arrogant if you think that God only gives gifts to certain special people on very rare occasions. Then it might seem kind of arrogant for someone to say that they got a gift from God. But if somebody believes that God is constantly giving gifts to people, like God's a gift giver and is very generous and gives gifts to everyone all the time and we just don't notice them, then it wouldn't seem unusual for somebody to see God causing a gift. And then in addition to these ideas about power and scope of operation, there's also thoughts about intent. What would be God or the devil or a spirit's motivation 
for for trying to come and communicate with us or to cause things here in the world. And what we found is that people's beliefs about power, uh, scope of communication or intervention, and intention all explain variance in people having experiences that they attribute to these different supernatural entities. So that's why we use the term supernatural operating rules, because your ideas about whether something supernatural is going on are going to partly reflect not just whether you believe that this entity exists, but how you think they operate in these ways. Does this also link to near-death experiences? Near-death experiences are one of my favorite topics, even though it's something that I haven't been able to do direct research on. But yes, with something like near-death experiences, it's a great example where you think about if somebody were to report having had a near-death experience, you could have your own ideas about, well, can a person die and then come back? If there is an afterlife or a God, can a person kind of go there and come back and remember things from that experience? Or if you're dead, are you just dead? Is this caused by something chemical that's going on in the brain? Either was the brain still active or did new things get put into the brain as a person was kind of coming out of something like a heart attack experience or drowning? What is it that's going on? So in some of our other work that we've done on after-death communications and demonic struggles, we've written some more clinically oriented papers talking about how when people hear these types of stories from others, or even if they have them themselves, you could either take out kind of a what we call mental illness lens, thinking this person's crazy, this might be a hallucination or a delusion, or you could take out kind of a normal psychological or physical lens like, oh, this near-death experience was, it was caused by something going on in the brain and this person might really want to believe this and make meaning from it, but you don't address any of the supernatural things. Or somebody might pick up what we call the supernatural lens and say, you know, I think there might actually be some valid evidence here, or I'm inclined to believe that this really is supernatural. And you can just imagine how different it would feel if you were telling somebody about one of these experiences, a therapist or even, you know, just another person in your life, and they were to respond to you as though a powerful experience that you had was a hallucination versus just kind of an interesting psychological thing versus maybe being real and indicating some non-material reality could really lead to a different type of conversation. Yeah, yeah, I could imagine. That's really interesting. I was wondering how there's this perception of how religion and science don't go together and how they are diametrically different. What is your response to that statement? Yeah, it's always a really controversial issue about whether religion and science can go together. We actually have a grant focused on this topic right now. Josh Wilt, my colleague, is the PI on that grant. So we're just getting into some of those questions ourselves. But there are a lot of other people who've done good work on this topic of the interface of religion and science in about the past five years, and there's been some grant competitions. The question of whether or not someone is going to see religion and science as compatible is going to depend a lot on what you think religion and science are about. So if you think that to be religious, you have to follow some type of supernatural authority to hold supernatural beliefs and to follow maybe word for word or very literally some type of sacred text, uh, like the, the Bible, for example, or the Quran, if you 
if if somebody holds a materialist worldview and just does not believe in supernatural entities, then they might be able to participate in some aspects of that religious tradition, those that are more focused on maybe morals, values, personal practices, but the fact that they don't believe in this, in a God or this supernatural authority is definitely going to create a sense of incompatibility. And similarly, for people who are going to take a sacred text or or some kind of oral tradition or something like that, uh, very literally, and if it implies supernatural beliefs, they might see scientific findings that conflict with that as being really enemies of the truth, and they might start to really mistrust science. But there are a lot of cases where people might learn about religious traditions or read religious texts and say, you know, this is a record of how a particular person or group of people were were trying to connect with the sacred at this point in time. So I can learn something from this, even if I don't take every word literally, or even if I don't even hold all of the same beliefs that went into writing this document, I can still take some good things from it. And then that might leave you more open to things like scientific information. If you're not trying to make scientific explanations fit together with literal word for word reading of some kind of a a sacred text. Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you. Um, I was also wondering how you recruit people for your studies. Do you go to like religion based university or states where there's a bigger population of religious people? Is it hard or is it easy to recruit people for your studies? I would say for the things that we've been doing on spiritual struggles and basic supernatural beliefs and attributions, it's easy. We tend to use the uh, online survey recruiting. So I work a lot with a, a company called Cloud Research, which I highly recommend, where they have access to mechanical Turk, Turk populations, but with an approved list so that it's better data quality, and also have access to panel samples, they call them, of people from the United States and other countries. So most of the work that we do involves those types of online studies. Even when we're seeking uh, experiences that might seem kind of rare, like people who've had experiences of thinking that a deceased loved one was talking to them, they're actually not that rare. Something like, depending on the study, anywhere between 15 and like 40% of people in the United States may have had those experiences. When you're searching for a specific group like that, you often have to pay a little more for your surveys because they have to give it out to more people to find them. But that's what we do. And I'm so grateful that we can do more of this online research today so that you're not having to just go to like a particular religious community or a particular religious university, because then you're going to have all those external validity concerns with it just being that one place or that one group. So now we we try to cast our net as widely as we can. And I'm very grateful that the survey companies help us to do that. Oh, thank you. What were the things that you found in your research that maybe surprised you the most or fascinated you the most? Yeah, I would say in our early work, when I was just getting into research on, on anger toward God, and I had a sizable number of atheists actually reporting that they were angry at God, that was something that really, really 
surprised me because I had thought that we would just have them skip around those questions. And when they were, some of them were skipping them, some of them were saying no, but some of them were saying yes. That really surprised me and made me curious and got us into more of the study of spiritual struggles among people who don't hold supernatural beliefs. So we try to be a little more careful now with how we ask those questions if we're talking with people or you know doing surveys with people who don't hold supernatural beliefs. We try to be more careful than we were in those early studies so they're not being misrepresented. But that was one of my, my favorite findings. And I think also just seeing just how common these spiritual struggles are in the, the certainly the US population you know, over well over half of people are talking about having some of these struggles now. And something like 70% or more have said that they've had some of these over their, their lifetime. So a lot of people, regardless of whether they're religious or spiritual, are having these struggles. And for me, just seeing the numbers on that, that was surprising to me, just how common these were and helped to clarify that it really is an important area for study because a lot of people are having a hard time with these issues, but because they don't necessarily meet criteria for like a psychological disorder, people might not know who to talk to, might not be able to go in for therapy and have it be covered by insurance, et cetera. Would you advocate for like religious counseling or that that would become a thing where people can talk to someone who's maybe more neutral than their, you know, priest or um, someone with authority in their church. Yeah. I mean, if I had time for a uh, clinical practice, which I just haven't had time for, even though I'm, I'm licensed, that's what I would want to specialize in would be helping people with spiritual struggles or talking to people who'd had important spiritual experiences that they wanted to explore in a safe place. Uh, but it can be hard. Sometimes there are, there are people who uh, are called spiritual directors, who I would say would be good at this type of work. So spiritual direction really means just talking with people about their spiritual life, their spiritual experiences. Some, sometimes they're coming from within a faith-based framework, usually Christian, but not always. And spiritual directors tend to be really open to talking with and listening to people from different faith traditions. Uh, the term direction is really misleading. They're not just like telling you what to believe or what to do. It's more almost like spiritual journeying with a person or spiritual companionship. So uh, I would say something like, you know, going to a retreat center or talking to a spiritual director could really be useful for a lot of people. Sometimes you could talk to a, a religious professional, like a member of the clergy, but sometimes the problems that a person is having are because of the religious tradition. <laughs> so going and talking with the authorities might just create more problems, you know, depending on what the situation is. And there's also a group of people through the, I believe it's, it's ACPE, is the abbreviation. I think it's the Association for Clinical and Pastoral Education. Uh, that is a, a group of people. A lot of them are chaplains. Some of them are people who work for places like hospice or are therapists or counselors. And they have a certification program in spiritually integrated psychotherapy. My, my good friend and very close colleague, Ken Pargament, wrote a wonderful book on spiritually integrated therapy over a decade ago. And uh, a lot of his techniques are being combined with lots of other people's 
wonderful clinical knowledge and experiences that have gone into that training. So looking up spiritual directors or somebody doing spiritually integrated therapy is probably what I would recommend for somebody who is having a hard time with spiritual struggles. Oh, thank you so much for sharing. I was wondering, what are you working on right now or what projects are on the horizon? I know you've mentioned this a little bit, but maybe you can expand. Some of the papers that I'm working on right now are coming from a data set on people's supernatural beliefs and spiritual struggles around psychedelic experiences. So a lot of the interesting mystical and spiritual experiences that people have around things like near-death experiences can also come up with psychedelic experiences or with meditation experiences. I'm interested in getting involved with some of this research on psychedelics. I don't know that I'll actually be involved in the clinical trials on that. You know, I don't have somebody with me who's doing that, but we're doing some survey-based research on people's attitudes about psychedelics and like whether they might serve as a gateway to divine or demonic messages, for example, or, or give people an actual glimpse of some other reality that's out there. So very interested in that, very interested in all kinds of things around the afterlife, the near-death experiences, the perception of after-death communications, and how people's belief in, say, a benevolent afterlife and that people continue to live on could affect the choices that they might make here today. And in terms of other struggle topics, very interested in struggles that are coming up around current political issues, political polarization. We have some studies on spiritual struggles around the 2016 and 2020 elections. Very interested in applying those ideas to ideas around things like religious nationalism, conspiracy theories, attitudes about all kinds of social issues, you know, abortion, guns, immigration, you know, all, all kinds of things. And finally, since a lot of my own interest and a lot of my own personal story too, that got me interested in all these topics has to do with kind of being hurt by organized religion and experiencing wounding and, and anger around certain religious teachings or how religious communities treat certain people. I'm interested in getting back into work on forgiveness, which is actually a topic I worked on in my, my pre-tenure period. Uh, there's some work out there now and, and a lot of podcasts and things focused on people leaving organized religion and, and being understandably very angry about it and angry at it. And I think that's there's a real need for that, actually. But I think that for some people, learning how to say, I needed to be angry for a while, and that was beneficial, but some of this anger might now be starting to kind of drag me down and might not be serving a constructive purpose anymore. So how can I learn from what I experienced and move on and just choose to move past or release some of this anger that maybe isn't helping me anymore? So something like forgiving organized religion is another topic of great interest. Oh, and LGBTQ struggles is another big thing. So we've got lots of, lots of different topics that we're interested in, but they're all kind of in this broad umbrella area of spiritual struggles and supernatural attributions. That sounds very interesting. Thank you so much for sharing. What's left is to thank you for taking the time to talk uh, with me about your really interesting research. Thank you, Julie. Oh, you're so welcome, Rebecca. Thanks for, thanks for reaching out. I enjoyed it.